0: I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. In Money, Power, Respect, How Women in Sports Are Shaping the Future of Feminism, Journalist Michaela McKenzie takes a look at how sports shape culture and how important equality and equity is in sports. And it's really taking sports and equity and the fight for equality as a microcosm for where we are as a culture at large. And I found this to be incredibly interesting, partly because. I don't know anything about sports. I don't know anything about women's sports. I read the headlines, but it it didn't come together as a cohesive storyline where we've got like the NCAA and we've got the women's soccer team fighting for equal pay and how much sports is just a very public and very transparent place that is really where we're fighting at the second shift, but also in the workplace at large in the here in the US. And I found it like incredibly interesting because I'm, I'm curious. I didn't really know anything about it. So I found this to be like a fascinating conversation because she's really done the research and seen how this plays out as well. It's also like the Women's World Cup It just was about to start when we had this conversation and the World Cup and the Women's World Cup, the women's soccer team has been on the forefront and very, very culturally relevant in this moment when we talk about equality, diversity, motherhood penalty, when we talk about equal pay, the ownership gap, you know, sponsorships, all of these things and how they play out both in sports, but in the culture at large. So I learned a lot and I hope you will, too. I feel a little intimidated going into this interview. I'm going to be really honest because you write about women and you write about sports and your book, which is money, power, respect, how women in sports are shaping the future of feminism. Now I understand feminism, future. I am all about those words. When we get into money, power, respect, got it. When we get into sports, Is where I feel a little bit like, ooh, I am not an expert in any way on sports or in particular women's sports. So so I'm a little nervous about this this topic because I just want (laughs) to make sure like disclaimer, I know nothing about what I'm talking about. Yeah,
1: no, that's totally fine. I mean, I was not a big women's sports fan before I started working on this book. Um, I was covering wellness at Glamour. I was the wellness director there and overseeing um, all of our health coverage and sports was part of that. And I started covering the U.S. Women's National Team on their road to the World Cup in 2019 And that's what really pulled me into this world. I mean, I, you know, was kind of a passive fan of sports before that. And, you know, was somebody who watched the Olympics every four years and would tune in for, you know, these big sporting events like the World Cup. But it wasn't something that was on my radar in a really, you know, deep sense or certainly I wasn't, you know, following teams day to day. So yeah, all that is to say you absolutely do not have to be a sports fan to appreciate this book and appreciate what's happening in women's sports because I think it really is so much bigger than that and does speak to a lot of the things we talk about in feminist and activist spaces.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when you're talking about women's empowerment, you're talking about pay equity and you're talking about you know equality on all levels within a professional environment. Sports is something where it's a professional environment. It's tricky when you think about it because, you know, and to your point, you you make this point in the book that it's the same power structures and dynamics. It's just that in an office building, it's hidden.
1: Yeah, exactly. In
0: the sports world, it's much more exposed because here you are, you have like a men's team and a women's team. And so you can see the discrepancies so much more clearly than you can when you're hiding it in like a big corporate environment.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's what has resonated with so many people, me included, you know, about the fight happening in soccer in particular. It's like, you know, here was a team of 23 women who were basically being told, you know, to sit down and be quiet and just be grateful for what they had. And I was like, every ambitious woman I know has had this experience who has felt, you know, told that they should just settle for less than what they deserve and be happy about it. They don't get to go, you know, on national television. They don't get to speak on all of these platforms. And so I think that really kind of galvanized me to be like, yeah, this is really important. And this is a conversation we should be having in all of our conversations about women's equality. Like athletes are these incredible, you know, leaders in that space.
0: Why do you think, and again, going back to my ignorance in this area, there are women, you know, you think about women tennis players, you think about, you know, different sports. Why is it soccer that really galvanized the conversation and has like become the area that has much more investment from women who are, you know, celebrities starting soccer teams and people really getting behind soccer in a way that I don't feel like it's been as much behind, like, let's say, you know, the WNBA. What what is it about this moment in time and particularly soccer?
1: Yeah, Uh, that's such a great question. I mean, I think, you know, you point out the WNBA and tennis, like, women have been doing work in those spaces for decades and the same is true in soccer, but I think soccer really kind of hit the cultural zeitgeist for a couple of reasons. One, I think there's some really big personalities on that team. That's just like, that's why we love to follow athletes and sports and celebrities just in general, like people who are outspoken and are willing to kind of say it like it is, but also, you know, I think what was happening in soccer was The players got really specific um, and they were kind of willing to go there in showing the receipts and calling out exactly what the pay discrepancies were. Whereas I think, you know, this is true for all of us and certainly in sports, we tend to be a little bit more timid in those conversations. People aren't really naming names or calling out exactly, you know, how much they're being paid. Like we don't like to talk about money. There's a taboo around that. And I think the soccer team really wasn't afraid to go there and say, this is exactly how much we're being paid. This is exactly how much the men's team is being paid. These are the problems with investment and like, we're naming names and we're just going all in.
0: And what, when they came out with this was the rationale, like, well, more people watch men. So there's more sponsorship dollars. And so it's really at the end of the day, business and it's viewers yeah. It's not about skill or whatever. It's just about like the audience, right? You could see how that would be the argument.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a simple question with a really complicated answer that has been true in sports and is still true in sports. In in many cases, not all that men's sports do draw bigger audiences, but you know, what I learned you know, is so clear when I was reporting this book is that it really comes down to investment. So like when you look at basketball, for example, the NBA is 75 years older than the WNBA. So like they've had nearly a century to build a fan base. They've been reaping investments from the league for nearly a century longer than the WNBA has even existed. And that makes a difference in, you know, being able to build this incredible like entertainment product that women's sports Just haven't had as much time to do that and build such a big fan base. But I think, you know, when you do look at the numbers, they're like rapidly outpacing where men's leagues were when they were that young. But then, yeah, you know, to your point about it's about audiences, not about skill, you know, with the soccer fight in particular, like there was this very scandalous brief that came out as part of the lawsuit that U.S. soccer had basically claimed that the women were biologically inferior and less skilled and that the job of a woman's soccer player was less demanding than the job of a men's soccer player, which they have since recanted and apologized for. But I think that really did kind of highlight some of the deeper misogynistic views that you know, are very much in the water in this space.
0: Do they play a different game? I don't understand how one would be different than the other. I I don't know that much about it, but like, if it's the same game in the same field, how is it different? Is it a
1: smaller field? No, no. Shorter game. It's just the same. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's sort of those misogynistic ideas about like, oh, well, you know, men are stronger and faster. So therefore they're better. So it's an institutional
0: mindset and and structure. I mean, I was looking in your book and I, I had no idea this fact. Like in 1896, which is the first modern Olympics, women were banned. And the reasoning was that it would be unseemly to watch women do sport and that it was about male excellence and female applause for their excellence. Yeah. So when we talk about thought process and structure of where we're coming from. That's where we're coming from. (laughs) We're here to applaud, not really to participate.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, that's why I think sports is such an important arena to be having these conversations in because, you know, they're not just reflecting our cultural attitudes, but actively shaping them. Like, I think that exact attitude is really inherent in a lot of industries that men are just better and smarter and more productive and, you know, more aggressive earners or whatever it is, depending on the specific job. But they're
0: more important because they're the breadwinners. So mm-hmm. it's more important that they have the job and get the oh. money. Yeah. That and, was the idea, right? That's, yeah. you know, you're going to leave anyway, woman. So we yeah. have to support this person who's going to be the one who stays here and and, and care of their family.
1: Still, yeah. That's still the attitude. I mean, One thing I learned when I was reporting that I was really surprised by was that, you know, I knew obviously about the motherhood penalty that, you know, women make less when they become mothers, but I didn't realize that there's also a fatherhood bonus that men literally make more money when they become fathers because of this assumed, you know, sort of cultural conditioning that like, oh, well, he has a kid and a family to support. So let's give him a raise.
0: It's unbelievable. I, I do think it's like, it's a really interesting microcosm of, what's happening in like a broader picture, just taking the lens of sports, right? So you've got so many norms are changing right now and just shining like the spotlight on how these things are changing within this world. In particular, I remember reading about the NCAA rules, Mm -hmm. right? And how that was really gonna change college athletes and giving them the ability to make money, be influencers, get sponsorship deals and that that's really benefited a lot of the female athletes. Yeah. In a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out over the next, you know, five, 10 years as well. Like we're really in the infancy of that and already we're seeing, you know, so many exciting stories coming out about these young women being able to make millions of dollars and capitalize on the fan bases that they're building especially if the life cycle of your
0: career is very short exactly. and there's not even particularly like if you're thinking about like if you're a D1 lacrosse player there's really nowhere to go after college mm-hmm. so if you have only that opportunity to make money then you need to capitalize on it then yeah and also you can think about like if the younger generations are so social media savvy and you create a groundswell around people and around a sport and around players, you could see how that would like push into professional sports afterwards and maybe like get more people to be interested in women's lacrosse as a professional sport. Or I'm using that as an example, but you know what I mean? Like it's changing the structure, like we said, but from an earlier point.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it just, it puts power in the hands of women to be able to actually capitalize on their own value, which is something that, you know, up until now, that's been very like policed and controlled by teams and universities and federations. And, you know, whoever is sort of the boss of the structure is, as opposed to letting women actually profit off of their work.
0: And let's talk about power because the book title is Money, Power, Respect, And those three things are incredibly linked. Walk me through the the naming of it and and how you understand that within the context of women's sports.
1: Yeah. Well, when I first started, you know, looking into this issue, I think like a lot of people, I came to it through this fight for equal pay. But, you know, it became very quickly apparent to me that money was really just the surface level. Like, yes, we're talking about a paycheck that the women are getting, but it all comes down to how much power they have in a system and how, you know, things have really been structured in a way that disadvantages women for decades. And so that was really important to me to emphasize in the book is that all of these conversations we have about money really come down to a conversation about power and who controls the narrative. And then respect, you know, that sort of like the icing on the cake for me about really, you know, at the heart of a lot of these conversations, there's just not as much respect for women and for what they do. And that kind of feeds into, you know, talking about the Olympics, like women weren't respected in 1896 and it wasn't, you know, therefore it just didn't occur to people that they could be amazing athletes. So I think, you know, once we see a foundational shift in the way that we think about women, the way that we talk about women, the way that they're portrayed in the media, we'll have a shift in these conversations on money and power. I think the whole thing is fascinating.
0: I have little kids and I see all the Younger girls and how much, like, how much sports means to them, and how important it is for women to be active participants in sports and see that there's like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But there are so many correlations between later success mm-hmm. and girls who play sports and who continue playing sports, like, especially into like later years, high school, college. What are some of the things in your research that you found that are the benefits of having really successful figures and a professional dynamic for little girls to see that as a role model? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, the tie between sports participation and future leadership success, like over 90% of female C-suite executives have played sports. And, you know, that's, that's no coincidence. Like sports is this incredibly fertile training ground where you get to learn how to fail, how to operate under pressure, how to push yourself. You know, you really get to hone those skills like grit that takes you to the next level in the business world. And there's all this research that also shows that women who played sports actually make more money professionally in jobs that have nothing to do with sports later in their careers. And I used to coach for this organization called Girls on the Run, which is so fantastic. And I want to plug it to everybody I ever talked to, (laughs) but they, it's a program for elementary and middle school girls that literally like teaches empowerment through learning to run a 5k. So, you know, I was working with these like eight, nine, 10 year old girls in training for this race and just seeing firsthand how they're perceptions of themselves and their confidence levels were shifting over the course of this, you know, eight or 10 week program, whatever it was, was just incredible. Like it was really undeniable. I did it for several seasons and it was like, every time you could just see them learn like, Oh, here's a thing I didn't think I could do. And I trained for it and I am capable. And that was just for me personally, that was so empowering and life-changing to see like yeah, this matters. Like access to sports participation matters for girls, especially, you know, when they're growing up in a society that tells them that they can't do so many things.
0: Absolutely. And going back to the title of your book, Money and Power, I think that we also think about social structures and networks, right? And you think about men and how they use sport to network and how many, I remember when I was in college, there were I went to a school that had really, I went to Duke and there were so many athletes and guys, men and women, but I more particularly remember it with men, there was like a pipeline of D1 players who then went on to specific jobs where alumni had been in from, you know, would hire them. And it was like seen as a huge bonus that they had been these college athletes. And I think about that in terms of like power and money. Because if you don't have that pathway for women to become players, to have it be in a more professional environment, there's so much that happens, that those networks that you build, the way that you have teamwork, the alumni, you know, mentor, those kind of relationships, that's incredibly important just in terms of like career trajectory and success. And so the more you can open up those environments to women and younger women, the better it's going to be for their ultimate futures. And maybe that's why so many women in C-suites are former athletes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, you know, I hadn't really been thinking about the networking piece of it when I was going into a lot of these conversations, but I heard that from several of the C-suite women that I interviewed for the book, as they specifically mentioned, like, my experience in sports has really helped me in rooms that are mostly men to be able to, A, just kind of relate in that way to, you know, be able to talk about sports and have that common ground, but also, yeah, as, as a means to kind of say, I belong here. And
0: there's a respect. There's a lot of respect for when you're like, oh, I was, you know, a volleyball player. Like you see, you see the respect people have for people who have had like success athletically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's one woman I interviewed for the book um, who's a former Nike executive, and she talked about how in a lot of these meetings that she would be in, she you know they would take place on a field somewhere, like at an athletic facility, and she would often try and she's a former soccer player, and so she would grab a ball and kind of start dribbling and shooting around, and just to show like, hey, like I can hang here. Don't mess with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you think you're hot shot,
0: yes. watch this, exactly. you know, there, you've got to take the power back where you can get it. Yeah. yeah, It's important. I think that this is, you know, such an important topic and so timely, especially since so much is focused on soccer and we're about to
1: get into the world cup season. So where do you see things going? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm so excited for this World Cup cycle because I think so much has changed between, you know, last World Cup four years ago and now. Just because, you know, we're just the World Cup is starting today and we've already seen so many incredible headlines about, you know, the success of this World Cup and no one's even touched a ball yet. Um, I just was reading just before we got on this call that in Australia, the Matildas, the women's team, they have officially sold more jerseys already than the men's team has sold during and since the men's World Cup last year. Which is crazy because that's one of those things that, you know, brands and sponsors often point to of like, oh, you know, no one cares about women's sports. And we're just seeing all these examples of like, that's not true. And we're finally getting, you know, the data to be able to back that up. So I'm excited to see what actually happens once we kick off the World Cup. Like it's already been such a success.
0: That's fantastic. Now, I don't think that we can have this conversation without talking about a very tricky topic, which is all the bands and the transports and you know this whole conversation because I don't even know how to have this conversation because it's so it's a yeah. minefield yeah. <laughs> and oh, and I don't really know a hundred percent what I think and feel so mm-hmm. I feel like it's a really like a fluid topic but how is everything being sort of conflated when you're talking about women and then you're also talking about trans and and it, Sometimes I think that like we try to make so much headway on things with women. Mm. And then our progress gets stymied when you throw in all these other things. And it's such a it happens all the time. It happened with women's reproductive rights fights. It happens with so many topics, you know, me too. And then all of a sudden it, it gets very choppy and everyone's raising their hands like, well, I want this and I want this. And then sometimes it feels like that can hold back the ultimate progress. Maybe not forever, just in the shorter run. I don't know. Yeah. What, what's it, happening here? How do we, <laughs> how do we, what are we, what's happening how and how are we navigating this? How do yeah. we, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it messing <laughs> up women's sports? Is it making, you know, we're trying to say we're equal, but then it's not equal, but then it's like, okay, well, men aren't the same as women so we should i don't know i don't know what we're yeah. doing with this
1: <laughs> it's very i mean yeah i think your what you're saying is so true for so many women like it it is a tricky topic it's like how how do i think about this where do we even approach this and i you know that was really clear to me i knew i wanted to get into it in the book i knew that was something i wanted to cover and you know i really so many women i know felt similarly of like I I don't know. Like I'm a huge supporter of women's equality and women's rights. And I'm a big supporter even of trans rights, but how, you know, how does that look in the sports space? And, and just, I think there is that feeling of like, it's also fair equal. Isn't fair. always. yes.
0: Right. Fair has to be fair. Mm -hmm. I don't know where do we go on equal or do we go on
1: fair? Cause they're (laughs) not the same always. Yeah. Well, when I went into reporting on this, you know, I wanted to, you know, first start by looking, well, I wanted to look at two things. I wanted to look at the science and I wanted to look at kind of the cultural impact. And, you know, the first thing I'll say is like, you have to really take a step back and look at the media landscape for issues, especially like this. And number one, there's like this huge overinflation of stories of trans women winning that contributes to a lot of fear mongering, where first of all, it's like, There's examples of races, like a track meet, for example, NCAA Division II track meet. Cece Telfer um, is this incredible athlete. She won uh, one race and became the first Division II trans athlete to win a race that was like blown out everywhere. Donald Trump Jr. attacked her on Twitter. You know, it's like it's all this coverage at the same meet. She lost, I think it was five other races And that gets no coverage anywhere. So it's, you know, she competed against cisgender women in these other races and lost, but no one's saying anything about that. So I think, you know, you have to kind of look at the whole landscape and understand like what things are being blown out of proportion to kind of create this hype that there's, you know, some great wave of trans women who are coming to steal all of the opportunities from cisgender women in sports. And that's just factually inaccurate. There's just also like as a percentage of demographic,
0: it's not something that can happen. It's just.
1: Yeah, there are currently, I mean, this was one thing that I was like, oh, this is so pressing and upsetting is that there are more bills that target trans girls in sports than there are out trans girls competing in sports. Like. And I think that really speaks to what's going on
0: here. Like, It's an easy way to get people really worked up and upset because sports, yeah. like you said, it is, it is a microcosm of society at larger and culture and where we are. And it's a really, it's such an emotional place because sports are something that people care passionately about. So it's yeah. it kind of is an easy thing to use to get people real worked up.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point about fairness, like all of these bills are aimed and often named something specifically like, you know, the Protecting Women's Sports Act or Fairness and Women's Sports Act. And, you know, I think understanding that there are more bills than there are actual trans girls competing, it's like, oh, this isn't really about fairness. This is about controlling women's bodies again. Like it's just, you know, another way kind of into that issue that I think is kind of a Trojan horse situation.
0: It's hard because, you know, I know there's even like professional athletes who are very outspoken for women's rights and women's equality who have come out saying that they don't think it's fair for trans men to be able to compete against women. It's like, you know, that's an impo- such a hard situation to put people in to have an opinion on, you know? Yeah. I th- Who was yeah. it that said that, like Martina Navratilova, maybe mm-hmm. something yeah. who said that? That's- And she's such a, you know, huge feminist Mm -hmm.
1: ally. I, I mean, I think the thing for me and, you know, when I kind of went into the book, I was I think a little bit more like, yeah, how do I think about this? And, you know, I need to have the conversations and do the research and talk. And after having done all of that and reporting on it for the book. What I came out with a really strong understanding of is like there's no equality for women without equality for all women. And, you know, that includes trans women. And I think. You know, we look back at now, we look back at the suffrage movement, for example, where, you know, we had these white women suffragettes who were fighting for the vote for women. But by that, they meant white women. And in a lot of cases were actively like suppressing the vote for black women. And we look at that now and say, obviously, that was wrong and that was horrible and we needed to be fighting for all women. And. My personal opinion is that that is how we're going to be looking at this conversation a hundred years from now saying like, oh yeah, we obviously needed to be fighting for equality for all women, including trans women. It's true. And
0: and look how quickly the conversation is changing, right? Yeah. So we're in the middle and it's shifting so quickly. I mean, in 1973 was Title X. And so, you know, that's basically pretty much in my lifetime that, We've gone from Title X to trying to figure out trans athletes. So everything moves towards progress. And it just takes time and people getting used to ideas of what it means fair and equal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we've seen so much progress, even in the last like five years within in the
0: last five years that soccer, the NCAA, the yeah. trans, like, this has all been happening very recently. So it's interesting to see. And I'm I'm glad that you're on this beat and following the story and using this as a way to help shine a light on a what's going on in the sports world. Because for people like me who don't really follow, it's great to be able to, to know, because it it is, it's, it's, it's part of the zeitgeist of where the world is, your sport. And I really appreciate the fact that you are doing that for all women.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we get so many awesome case studies in sports too. Like you're saying, even just the equal pay and the NCAA, what's happened. You see them in these big headlines, even for people who aren't necessarily engaged in sports. And it's all proof of what happens when you give women opportunity, like you give people a fair playing field and we're seeing women really execute and excel. And I think that's really encouraging and that's a positive case study for all industries. I thank you so much
0: for your time and for the book, Money, Power, Respect, and keep doing what you're doing. Thank this you. This is awesome. Yeah. Happy yeah. World Cup yeah. season to you. <laughs> thank you. And take care. Awesome. Have a good one. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.